I'm Rick Smith, and I've been here at Bethel since 2016, enjoying this great church on this spectacular place off the northern tip of Door County, Wisconsin. This message comes from our Sunday morning service here on the island, and it's geared towards discovering what the Bible has to say to us in our everyday lives. So God's blessing on you, and thanks for joining with us wherever you are today. Well, so that song may be a little bit of a, of a theme song for the series we're doing called If Jesus is the Answer, What's the Question? And then Who's Asking? Because all of those things kind of come together, don't they? We, we see this, this and we, we talk about this, that Jesus is the answer for, well, this song for the world today. Well, what's the question? And, and the thing is, different people are asking different questions, aren't they? We, it's not a one-size-fits-all because we're all very different in how we've been wired and, and the passions that we have. I, we could just see that, well, just looking around this room and, and watching at Vacation Bible School this week. Just These kids just, just come from different ways of, of looking at the world. We had this time machine at the, at the, at the front of the room there. And, and uh, so we did just a, a variety of different things with that, put things in there. Like we, well, we put an egg in there and then set it forward about, oh, 30 days, and a chicken came out, uh, completely wrapped and ready to eat. <laughs> uh, we, uh, we, we put a cell phone in there and uh, sent it back about 25 years, and out came a, a cordless phone. <laughs> uh, and, and then we put, we put a young boy in there, and uh, we sent him in, and we actually, we, we, we set it too far ahead because we opened it up, and there was a, a bucket of dust. <laughs> oh, that's, that's a little dark. Uh, so he said, we probably we need to rewind that a little bit. And then so we rewound it, and so it was only like 30 years in the, in the future from us. And so out came this boy as a man. He had black hair when we went in, black hair, black beard, and... Well, it was actually Tommy Pratt and then his dad, Tom. But interestingly, later that night, uh, their, their daughter, Opal, she's looking at her dad, and she's like, Dad, were you at church today? <laughs> and so, I mean, she just is able to suspend that belief or, or just uh, her imagination able to do that. So she's like, what really just happened? I mean, she was 20 feet away from her dad. He's like, was that you? Whereas we had other kids who said, I know exactly what you're doing. There's a door behind there, and you're just bringing things in out. And, and, and we just come with different mindsets. And, and so there's not one size fits all for all how we come to life and faith. And we come with different questions. So if Jesus is the answer, what's the question? But that depends on who's asking. And in these series of incidents or encounters with Jesus, we're seeing how different people are coming to him and, and, and what their approach may be in looking at him. And today we're going to look at another scene where Jesus interacts with people. And so this one is, well, it, there's a corpse involved with this because Jesus is going to have uh, some very interesting interactions with the people as as they talk about what's actually going on here. Uh, we're gonna be, I'm going to be reading out of the Message Bible today. And so you can just follow along. Um, but it does a, a wonderful picture of, of the scene and captures wonderfully what's going on. So this is in chapter 11 of John. And it starts this way. A man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, 
the town of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the same Mary who massaged the Lord's feet with aromatic oils and then wiped them with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Master, the one you love so very much is sick. When Jesus got the message, he said, This sickness is not fatal. It It will become an occasion to show God's glory by glorifying God's Son. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, but oddly, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed on where he was for two more days. After the two days, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. They said, Rabbi, you can't do that. The Jews are out to kill you, and you're going back? Jesus replied, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in daylight doesn't stumble because there's plenty of light from the sun. Walking at night, he might very well stumble because he can't see where he's going. He said these things and then announced, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going to wake him up. Well, the disciples said, Master, if he's going to sleep, he'll get a good rest and wake up feeling fine. Jesus was talking about death while his disciples thought he was talking about taking a nap. So then Jesus became explicit. Lazarus died, and I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. You're about to be given new grounds for believing. Now let's go to him. That's when Thomas, the one called the twin, said to his companions, Come along, we might as well die with him. When Jesus finally got there, he found Lazarus already four days dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, only a couple miles away, and many of the Jews were visiting Martha and Mary, sympathizing with them over their brother. Martha heard Jesus was coming and went out to meet him. Mary remained in the house. Martha said, Master, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask, he will give you. Jesus said, your brother will be raised up. Martha replied, well, I know that he will be raised up in the resurrection at the end of time. You don't have to wait for the end. I am right now resurrection and life. The one who believes in me, even though he or she dies, will live. And everyone who lives believing in me does not ultimately die at all. Do you believe this? Yes, Master. All along I have believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who comes into the world. After saying this, she went to her sister Mary and whispered in her ear, The teacher is here, and he's asking for you. The moment she heard that, she jumped up and ran out to him. Jesus had not yet entered the town, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When her sympathizing Jewish friends saw Mary run off, they followed her, thinking she was on her way to the tomb to weep there. Mary came to where Jesus was waiting and fell at his feet, saying, Master, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her sobbing and the Jews with her sobbing, a deep anger welled up within him. He said, Where did you put him? Master, come and see, they said. And now Jesus wept. The Jews said, Look how deeply he loved him. Others among them said, well, if he loved him so much, why didn't he do something to keep him from dying? After all, he opened the eyes of the blind man. Then Jesus, the anger again welling up within him, arrived at the tomb. 
It was a simple cave in the hillside with a slab of stone laid against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. The sister of the dead man, Martha, said, Master, by this time, there's a stench. (laughs) He's been dead four days. Jesus looked her in the eye. Didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Then to the others, go ahead, take away the stone. They removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes to heaven and prayed, Father, I'm grateful that you have listened to me. I know you always do listen, but on account of this crowd standing here, I've spoken so that they might believe that you sent me. Then he shouted, Lazarus, come out. And he came out, a cadaver wrapped from head to toe and with a kerchief over his face. Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him loose. As we approach this story, that there's, there's all kinds of different characters that are a part of it. And each of them on some level is going to have, well, undoubtedly some kind of questions for Jesus about what's going on here. Interestingly, Martha and Mary have some connection because they're able to find where Jesus is, send a messenger and get him and, and tell him about his friend Lazarus. And, and they've got some way of finding him. But as he hears this news and, and that the sickness, I mean, it must have been a concerning sickness because they sent word to, to Jesus to come. But he sticks around for two days. And the disciples, undoubtedly one of their questions must have been, what are we doing here? Shouldn't we be going? Isn't this the time? If, if he's sick, we need to be going now. And, and Jesus waits those two days. And, and then all of a sudden, like a, a switch turns on. He said, all right, we're going back to Judea. To which the disciples are kind of putting this together. I mean, Bethany, is, uh, and, and John makes the point very clearly, it's right next to Jerusalem. This is the place where people are plotting and trying to kill him from his other interactions there. And they say, you can't do that. That's, that's insane. The people, they're trying to kill you there. Why would we go back to there? And, and Jesus makes this, oh, somewhat cryptic comment about the, the 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of night. And, and, and I was like, what is he talking about there? And undoubtedly, there's like trying to put these pieces together. And, and I think basically what he's saying is the time is now. It's, it's daylight. It's a time to travel right now. And if we wait any longer, it'll be metaphorically dark, and we'll be stumbling around here. But somehow, it's, it's time now. And undoubtedly, the disciples were like, okay, why wasn't it time two days ago? Jesus says, because I got something here. That I might be glorified, and that the Father might be glorified, and see something that's going to happen that's going to blow their hair back. And help them see something bigger and larger than that which they were expecting. So the disciples undoubtedly have questions. And, and as Jesus says, well, our brother Lazarus, he's asleep. And you know, I think more often than not, I'm with the disciples. <laughs> Jesus says stuff, and I'm like, oh, okay, if he's sleeping, then he's like, no, he's dead. <laughs> and we're going to go. And then, 
And then Thomas jumps in there. Now, if you've read the Gospel of John before, you, and if you've heard anything in culture, you've heard this phrase, a doubting Thomas. Right? Because when, when Jesus goes through the sacrifice and his death and his resurrection, many of his friends, the disciples, say, we saw Jesus. And Thomas is like, whatever. i got to put my hands in his side and in his hands. Uh, otherwise, you guys, you guys are just making this up. And eventually he does come across Jesus and, and believes. But, but here we have a, a little bit of a different picture of, of, of Thomas. He kind of gives a maybe a fuller picture for us. He's not just the downing Thomas because right here he's ready. All right, let's go that we might die too. It's like, okay, take it easy, Thomas. It's a little enthusiastic there. But what are they heading towards? Where are they going? What is Jesus up to here? Why wouldn't he go right away? Why must Lazarus go through this? What's going on? Clearly, that, that, that must have been what his sisters, Mary and Martha, were thinking. The response, both of them, as soon as they see him, Master, if only you'd been here, if only you'd been here, he would have died. And then he begins to talk about something bigger than just the healing of an ill man. And ultimately, something that's larger than even the recovery of this dead man. But he begins saying things like, I am the resurrection and the life. It's like, okay, this is, this is maybe a question we're not asking. <laughs> and I think Jesus is saying, this is the question you need to be asking. What is this life about? And who am I in the midst of it? What do I have to say about life and resurrection and death? And well, as Jesus approaches the tomb, uh, many of our, our English Bibles will say that Jesus was deeply moved, which sounds like, oh, that's so nice. He's... But probably the better way of describing is how Eugene Peterson puts it here, that he was welled up in anger. The, the, the word there is almost always used in, in that kind of format. Uh, uh, D.A. Carson would says it is completely inexcusable to take it in any other way than anger being expressed here. Which raises another question. What is he so angry about? I mean, death, it's, it happens. It's part of life. And I think Jesus' point is, No. Death is an intrusion. Death is not okay. This, this suffering, this pain, this sorrow, this is not okay. It was never to be the design. But such is the impact that sin has had on this world. We just finished uh, last month uh, a series through 1 Corinthians. And in chapter 15, it uh, talks about this this challenge and this taunt of death that, that Paul gives as he's, he's led by the Spirit. He says, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Because in Jesus, the sting of death, the victory of death is gone because Jesus overcame it by his resurrection. Because it's not okay. Because God created life. And death came into the world because of sin. And so... Twice in approaching this tomb, 
We see Jesus angry. And we see him weeping. And then calling, calling Lazarus forth. There's a little bit of comedy in there, isn't that? Uh, they, he calls him forth, and, and well, it says, move the stone. And, and uh, the one sister is like, uh, Jesus. Uh, in the King James, I, I just has wonderfully put it. Uh, it's been four days. He stinketh. <laughs> and that's an important component here, that Jesus has been dead four days. Four days. If you're dead four days, you're dead dead. You're not almost dead. You're not mostly dead. You are dead dead. Uh, one of the beliefs in, in, within the culture there was that there's some possibility in the first three days after death that that maybe the soul is still hanging around and, and looking for an opportunity to get back into an But four days, four days is dead. And as his sister puts it, he stinketh. And after four days, Jesus calls him. And he comes forth. And again, a little bit of almost comedy here. He's walking just covered with, with these... The, the wrappings that would happen to a, a body that's put in the grave, and just take those off of him so he can walk around. And people are amazed. They've seen something. Again, this is four days. There's no possibility of coming back after four days. But he comes forth. Verse 45 goes on this way. There was, there was, this, that was a turnaround for many of the Jews who were with Mary. They saw what Jesus did and believed in him. But some went back to the Pharisees and told on Jesus. The high priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the Jewish ruling body. What do we do now, they asked. This man keeps on doing things, creating God signs. If we let him go on, pretty soon everyone will be believing in him and the Romans will come and remove what little power and privilege we have. Then one of them, it was Caiaphas, the designated chief high priest that year, spoke up. Don't you know anything? Can't you see that it's to our advantage that one man dies for the people rather than the whole nation be destroyed? And they go on to talk about the plot that they have to kill Jesus. A plot unwittingly that actually puts forth the plan that God has made. But interestingly, in the midst of all these miraculous things that Jesus had been doing, people being healed, blind people given their sight again, demons being cast out, and now this Lazarus story of him coming back to death or coming back to life after four days, this is amazing. Many people believed but not everyone, which is curious, right? Because sometimes we approach life and we approach faith not looking for answers, but looking for what we want to see. The chief priests and the Pharisees, they're watching Jesus, and they're trying to figure out how can we get rid of this guy? He's it's not good. Well, people are praising God and people are coming back to life. Yeah, yeah, but this is not good. This is not what we understand. And they begin this plot, a plot that they eventually will have success with. So where is their faith? If they were to ask Jesus questions, 
what would they be looking for? What do they want to know from Jesus? Uh, which I think begs the question for all of us, how do we approach him? Are we approaching Jesus and life and faith looking for answers or, or looking for what we want to hear? Because sometimes that's all we want. Give me, some, give me something, tell me something that fits in with what I know and I understand. I've got a story from Lee Strobel, his book, The, the Case for Faith. Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune for many years and worked the, the legal beat for uh, much of that time. And, and he says, one day, a lawyer had a tip for me, a human interest story. He said that it was the tale of a reformed gang member, an inspiring yarn about a former street terrorist who had found religion and gone straight. It will be heartwarming, he promised. A good Sunday read. I rolled my eyes. The story sounded too saccharine for me. I was on the prowl for something hard-hitting, something gritty, something that would land me on the front page of the Weekend Tribune. I wasn't interested in a naive fairy tale about some flaky, born-again fugitive. But the weekend was approaching fast, and the story leads I had been pursuing had taken me down nothing but blind alleys. So I reluctantly wrote down the lawyer's tip. Who knows, maybe I can expose this con man's phony story and get the kind of article I was after. So I picked up the phone and started calling my police sources. Has anyone ever heard of this Ron Bronsky character? Sure enough, my contacts in the gang crimes unit were well acquainted with him. He was the, t- stuff, the street toughened second in command of the Bel Airs, a gang that terrorized parts of Chicago's northwest side. He was dangerous and violent, they said. He had a hair-trigger temper, an appetite for illicit drugs, and an encyclopedic arrest record. The guy is a sociopath, one investigator said. Another snorted, snorted at the mention of his name and dismissed him with a single word, garbage. They told me there was a warrant out for his arrest on a charge of aggravated battery for shooting a rival gang member in the bank. I scrawled the word coward in my notebook. We haven't seen him around for a long time, one undercover cop told me. We figure he's fled the city. The truth is, we don't care where he is as long as he's not around here. Well, then I called some church leaders in Portland, Oregon, where the lawyer told me Bronski had been living for the last couple of years. While working at a metal shop, he had met some Christians and supposedly abandoned his life of crime, married his living girlfriend, and became a devout follower of Jesus. Ron is one of the most beautiful, loving people I know, his pastor told me. He's totally committed to Christ. We pray together several times a week, and he's always doing things like visiting the sick and praying with them and using his street knowledge to preach to troubled kids. I guess people would call him a Jesus freak. He said that Bronski had been reconciled with God, but not with society. He knew there was still a warrant out for his arrest, so he saved his money and took the train to Chicago to turn himself in. Well, that piqued my curiosity. A guilty plea to aggravated battery could bring 20 years in the penitentiary. I decided I would go to the next step in my research by interviewing Bronski as soon as his lawyer could arrange a meeting. That night, I was sitting at our kitchen table, mulling the conflicting portraits that the pastor and the police had painted of Bronski. I said to my wife, on the surface, it sounds like a miraculous change. On the surface, she asked, yeah, when I dig deeper, I'll find out his scam. 
She eased him in the chair across from me and sipped from a mug. The police weren't hunting for him, but he gave himself up anyways. What would motivate him to do that? That's what I'm going to find out, I said. He's probably pretending to he's reformed so he'll get a lighter sentence. Or his lawyer is trying to cut some sort of deal with a prosecutor. Or he knows the witnesses are all dead and they can't convict him anyway. Or, or he's hoping to get some positive publicity to influence the judge. Or he's setting up an insanity defense. And I, I went on and on and my hypotheses getting more and more outlandish as I speculated about the real reason why he was turning himself in. I considered every far-out possibility except that he had legitimately changed and that he had decided to do the right thing by facing the consequences. Finally, Leslie put up her hand. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Those are some pretty bizarre theories. She put down her cup and looked me in the eyes. Tell me something. Are you trying to poke holes in his story because you really think he's a con man? Or are you raising objections because you don't want his story to be true? I jumped on the defenses. Hey, it's my job to be skeptical. But she had struck a nerve. To be honest, I didn't want to believe that Christianity could radically transform someone's character and values. It was much easier to raise doubts and manufacture outrageous objections than to consider the possibility that God actually could trigger a revolutionary turnaround in such a depraved and degenerate life. As it turned out, Ron Brownski survived my cynical attempts to skewer his story. The street-savvy police detectives were absolutely convinced that the changes in his life were authentic. So was the prosecutor. After hearing the evidence, the judge agreed, and instead of sentencing to him to penitentiary, he set him free on probation. Go home and be with your family, he told a surprised and grateful Bronski. Today, more than 20 years later, Bronski is still a minister to street kids in the inner city of Portland, and he remains a close friend of mine. For Strobel, who at this point was doing all he could with put Christianity off on the side, at some point, he, he goes to great efforts to try and disprove Christianity altogether using his investigative techniques to show that it's a sham. And in the process of doing that and genuinely looking at the evidence there, he came to faith in Jesus. But his starting point influenced where he was going. The questions he would ask Jesus was, well, he doesn't exist, so what is, what's the game here? And despite the things that were in front of him, wanted nothing to do with it. Until he came to a point where he considered it, that God actually could have done a work and transformed this life. See, our, the questions we come with, the ways we approach that matters. In your life, you've gone through all kinds of experiences, circumstances, difficult things, great things. And, and today, maybe your questions for Jesus are entirely different than they would have been five years ago or 20 years ago. But as you approach this life we call faith and, and trusting in God through Jesus... What are you holding on to? What is it that's challenging you to say, 
I need to go towards him. What is God calling you to today? What's, what's the question? What's your question? What would you want to ask him? Do it. Go to him and ask. God's not afraid of your doubts or your concerns or your intellectual responses. But if he exists, and we believe he does, then he'll answer the questions and concerns that you have. Does that mean that everything will will just be hunky-dory and and no problems will ever happen again? Uh, No. Those of us who have walked down the road away have seen still hurts and heartaches, but in the midst of them have seen God's presence and help to get us through these storms. So again, what's your question? What will you do with Jesus? Let's stand for closing prayer. Father, we do come before you and and lift ourselves up. Spirit of God, move in our hearts and our lives and and help us to be honest and with ourselves and the things that we're struggling with, hanging on to. And help us. Help us to understand and to work through and to, to get over and to bring to you what our concerns are. Help us to look for truth and not just what we want to have happen. This world is is so often disappointing. Your church, our church, has so often been disappointing. And yet you still love us and call us to, to turn away from the things we've done to fail and to follow you. Spirit of God, guide and direct us this week. And we pray this in the name and power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. Amen. God bless you this day and this week. Well, thanks again for listening. And to learn more about how you can connect with Bethel Community Church, check out our website at islandbethelchurch.com or join us for a service Saturday night at 6 or Sunday morning at 1045. Hope to see you soon. God bless you.